Just a brief disclaimer, there's some adult stuff and violence this week. Check out mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, you'll see why the rules of Myths and Legends were made to be broken, and why you should allow that horrifying witch to tie you up and lower you down into a hollow tree. And you'll also see which item in your kitchen will help you train that pesky dog, the one with eyes the size of skyscrapers. Then, on the Creature of the Week, if Grandma gets you a mummified dog head for your birthday, just hold on to the receipt. This is Myths and Legends, Episode 101, Three Dog Night. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week's episode is brought to you by Dear Franklin Jones. Growing up, reporter Jonathan Hirsch's family was a little different. They followed a controversial spiritual leader named Franklin Jones. To Jonathan's parents, Franklin Jones was a god. But to people outside the group, he was a cult leader. Dear Franklin Jones is a new podcast from Stitcher. Join Jonathan on a journey to find out what really happened, whether the group really did become a cult. It's well-produced with a strong host, weaving between personal accounts, interviews, and an inside look at a life few people know. Check it out. You can subscribe to Dear Franklin Jones in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. This week on the show, there are two stories about money problems. The first is from Danish folklore. It's actually from someone I've had kind of a love-hate relationship with on this show, Hans Christian Andersen. It might just be my favorite story that he's written, because he didn't actually write it. He actually just collected it, put it down to paper, published it, and everyone hated it. The second story today is a short one from Vietnamese folklore. I think it's our first time doing a story from Vietnam. It's about which animals can and can't testify for you in a court of law. The first story, though, starts with the soldier coming home from war. The elderly woman hobbled closer and stopped the soldier on the road. He was just returning from war and carried a knapsack on his belt and a sword at his side. The woman beamed. He was a fine-looking young man, she said. A real soldier. In life, he would have as much money as he liked. The soldier grinned. Thank you, old witch. Oh, wow, whoa. It's a little presumptive, don't you think? She replied, her smile gone. Not really, he said. You're approaching me on the road alone. Your bottom lip hangs down well past your chest. In fact, you're just horrifying and painful to look at. I mean, it's really just, ow. It's all pretty standard witch stuff. Okay, well, you're right. I am a witch, but I'll have you know, it's not good to stereotype people we meet. The soldier shrugged. It worked in this instance. The witch redirected him, asking if he saw that large tree just down the road. Inside, it was hollow. And if the soldier climbed to the top of the tree, he'd find a hole. If he let himself down, he'd see that the hole actually extended deep underground. But not to worry, she would be happy to tie a rope around his waist and pull him up again when he wanted. The soldier stood there squinting as he made some calculations and said, Okay, maybe I missed something. Why am I allowing a witch to lower me into a creepy tree? He asked. To get money, she replied. The guy shrugged. All right that's all he needed to hear. Let's do this. But the old woman stopped him. That actually wasn't all he needed to hear. There was like way more to the instructions. The soldier sighed. All right, let's hear him. (laughs) 
The soldier was surprised by the strength of the witch as she lowered him down into the hollow tree. He had his sword at one side and the witch's blue checked apron on the other. She had given it to him. It apparently was important. His feet touched down in the hall of 300 lamps and he looked around. Yep, a hall with 300 lamps. It was as creatively named as it was interesting, so he made his way to the doors. Before him stood three doors with three locks. The three locks had three keys in them, which kind of defeated the purpose of the locks, but whatever. He opened the first door as the witch had instructed him. The room was humid and smelly. The soldier blinked and he saw them. Eyes watching from the darkness. They were massive too, the size of teacups. The soldier froze. Now was the time to see if it was a bad idea to trust strange witches you met in the wilderness. He inched a few feet inside the door, laid the apron down, and ran away. A low growl began, joined by the sound of claws scraping the stone floor, and then nothing. He grabbed one of the lamps from the hall, turning the place into the slightly less illustrious hall of 299 lamps, and he entered the room. There, in the center, sat a massive dog, a beast with eyes as big as saucers, and it had frozen in place the moment it touched the apron. The soldier shrugged and walked right past the frozen guardian to the lone chest nearby. He popped up in the chest and revealed a pile of copper coins, more money than he had ever seen in his entire life, and he groaned. Ugh, he picked the copper one first. All right, might as well fill up. He scooped the copper coins into all of his pockets and left the room. Before he did, however, he put one hand on the doorknob and the other on the blue apron. He pulled the apron out from underneath the dog and slammed the door behind him. If the dog remembered the soldier being in the room, he didn't show it because the room with the copper chest was silent. Next, the soldier entered the second door. Inside, it was hard to miss the hound with eyes the size of millstones staring down at him. This dog was at least five times his size, so he offered a very polite hello before laying the apron down again. He watched this time as the dog took one step on it and froze. As he did before, the soldier slipped past the guardian and opened up the lone chest. Oh my gosh, silver? Uh, whatever. Third time must be a charm. Still, he stole as much silver as he could. In the third and final room, the dog with the eyes the size of towers watched in confusion as the soldier waved hello, spread out the apron on the floor, and made threatening faces at the giant guardian before the confused dog took one step and froze. The young man threw open the last chest. Finally, gold. He ended up throwing away all the silver and copper to make room for his new gold, going so far as to fill up even his boots. The rich soldier shuffled back to the hole in the top of the hall with 299 lamps, tugged the rope, and the witch pulled him out. Did you get it? She asked as he sat on the grass counting his money. Uh, get what? The tinderbox. The one thing I sent you down there to get. Remember? We just cut to you being lowered down into the hall for the sake of brevity, but I asked you to get me the tinderbox sitting on the pedestal. After another arduous cutscene of the soldier down and up the hollow tree trunk later, the young man was back, this time with the tinderbox. As he looked on his literal pile of gold sitting on the ground, at the surely evil witch, and then to the innocuous-looking tinderbox, a thought occurred to him. The soldier narrowed his eyes and turned to the witch. What did an evil old witch want with a tinderbox? The witch was outraged. Who was this little punk to call her evil? He didn't know anything about her. Did she occasionally like to trick children into entering her house in order to kill and consume them? Yes, but who didn't? 
But he didn't know that, and frankly, she didn't like the prejudice. He took a step back, hand on the hilt of his sword. Either she explained her interest in the tinderbox, or he would cut off her head. Ho, oh, a real mature, now who's the evil one? scoffed the witch, threatening to cut off people's heads. It's not like he wasn't paid really, really well for the job when she had to do all the heavy lifting. Twice. No, she wasn't going to tell him. She would be taken. But the soldier cut her off by chopping off her head. He was fast, and she legitimately was not expecting things to turn violent. She thoroughly expected to walk away with the tinderbox and let the soldier walk away obscenely rich for 20 minutes of work. Her head rolled away. A shocked look frozen on its face as the body slumped to the ground. And after he had gathered his gold, the soldier left it there, unburied, to rot in the sun. With the witch's enchanted apron slung over his shoulder and his new collection of gold, the soldier was feeling pretty good about himself. He'd made enough money to live off of forever, killed a probably evil witch, and it wasn't even dinner time yet. In time, he arrived at the next town and plopped his completely normal elderly woman apron purse down on the table and asked for the finest room the inn had to offer and all his favorite dinners. At once, the innkeeper looked at the pile of gold the size of a small child sitting on the table and nodded. He could absolutely make something work. And he did. For the next few months, the soldier wanted for nothing in the finest, most overpriced room he could buy. He bought the finest clothes, went to the best theaters, and made the snobbiest friends. The type that, when he inevitably burned through an entire pile of gold in under a few months, and had to move from the fancy hotel rooms to a drafty attic apartment, suddenly had a lot of other stuff going on. The now poor soldier sat mending his boots one night, looking out on the town every so often, and, most intriguing of all, the castle. Now, he knew the castle was made completely out of copper, and from his days rubbing elbows with the city's elite, the soldier had learned why the king had hand-built such an expensive monstrosity. It was for his daughter. There was a prophecy that the king's daughter would marry a common soldier, and since the king would rather his daughter stay locked away in the tower forever than deface the family name by marrying someone beneath them, he did what any loving parent would do, and locked her away forever. She couldn't meet anyone below her station if she couldn't meet anyone. Well, the soldier obviously saw an opportunity here, but he had burned through all of his money before he could weasel in and see the king about his daughter's hand. Now, he wondered if he had any future at all. It would have been easier just to have stayed a poor soldier the whole time. That way, he would have never known the medieval luxuries of fancy clothes, more than one meal per day, and mostly lice-free beds. He had experienced the good life and lost it all. Rummaging through his bag, he touched upon his last few coins and sighed. Rent was due, and next month, if he couldn't find work, he would be on the streets. The soldier picked up the bag and noticed something at the bottom. The tinderbox? It was the item the long-dead witch had tasked him with retrieving, the item she was literally dying to have. He felt a draft in his little apartment and shrugged. He figured he would make a fire. After carefully stacking a few logs, he chose a bit of metal and some flint from the tinderbox and struck it once. Instantly, a flame sputtered to life, yes, but something else a bit more noteworthy also happened. Screams from outside the building broke the silence before heavy thudding ran up the stairs to his room. He whipped around 
and looked into a pair of eyes as big as teacups. It was a dog, the one from the Hall of 300 Lanterns. The soldier stifled a scream and looked frantically around his apartment for the old witch's apron. He laid one hand on the cloth when he heard it. What are my orders? Master. Wait, it's you? And you can talk? The soldier asked the dog. The dog stared back. He was not going to dignify that inane question with a response, though he totally could have because he was a talking dog. Instead, he repeated the request for orders. The soldier stood thinking, brow furrowed. But, okay, how did you get out of that room and up the hollow tree? Look, I'm a giant talking dog you summoned with flint and steel. On a long list of questions, that's really toward the bottom. You know what? The answer is, don't worry about it. Do you want your wishes or not? The young man replied that he did. He definitely did. Uh, how about some money? The dog shrugged and headed for the door. Wait, the soldier yelled, catching the dog before he left. A lot of money. The dog rolled his eyes and disappeared. Before the soldier could blink, the dog was back with two giant bags of money dangling from his mouth. He dropped the money, and in the blink of an eye, he was gone. One day later, having learned absolutely nothing, the now rich soldier was back to renting the nicest room in the inn, and his friends, seeing him once again in nice clothes and buying them dinner, miraculously remembered who he was. It was going to be different this time, too. I mean, he wasn't going to adjust his spending habits. That would be ridiculous. No, it was different, because he could just now summon a dog to get more money for him whenever his balance grew low, and he did. And he also learned that he wasn't limited to only the smallest of the dogs. One night, he took the flint and steel out to a field and hit it twice. And then the dog with the eyes the size of millstones appeared. He hit it three times. And the biggest dog, the dog with the eyes the size of towers, appeared. For a few months, the soldier lived contentedly in all of his new riches. But one night, the copper castle shining in the darkness caught his eye. And he had an idea. the hero of our story will continue to make pretty evil decisions, but that will be right after this. You want me to kidnap the princess? The dog repeated to the soldier. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not kidnapping. It's just removing her from her home and bringing her here without her consent, so I can see how beautiful she is. That's absolutely kidnapping. I mean, I'll do it, the dog said. You have the tinderbox. I have to do everything you say. But while I don't care if you lie to me, at least be real with yourself. The soldier shook his head. No, he just wanted the dog to bring her here. Nothing more. Fine. One kidnapping coming right up, the dog said, and disappeared into the night. Within moments... He returned with the sleeping princess, draped across his back. The soldier gasped when he saw her. She really was as beautiful as everyone said. He took her face in his hands and started kissing her. Whoa, hey man, that is not okay. That is 100% assault, the dog said, regarding the very uncomfortable scene taking place on his back. The soldier scoffed, shut up. No one cares what a magical dog thinks. Besides, 
What was he even talking about? The princess was sleeping. She would think that this was all just a dream in the morning. Okay, you're perfectly describing assault, the dog insisted. Oh, oh, the soldier grew frantic. Speaking of which, she's waking up, the soldier said. You better get her back. The dog was very happy to. And he, once again, took off into the night. The old woman heard the sound of the princess's door springing open, and she jolted awake. She watched the dog run past her in a blur, and she sprinted to keep up. Earlier that week, the princess had woken up with a pretty fantastical story. She said she had been kidnapped that night by some dog, and a strange man had kissed her. The king and queen smiled and nodded and went about their day. When the princess had the same dream for three nights straight, however, they began to grow suspicious. They had stationed a sentry outside her door, and that night, the sentry saw the dog. Sprinting through the streets, the old woman, somehow, managed to keep up and made it to the door of the soldier's lofty apartment where the princess had disappeared. The woman dug her hand into her pocket, found a piece of chalk, and marked the door with an X. Then she ran back to the castle, just before the dog returned with the princess. In the morning, the king's guards rode out to the street where the dog had taken the princess to arrest the soldier, but they found the entire street had X's marked on the doors. That morning, the soldier had risen early and found the suspicious marking on his door. He had heard the story of Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves, and he knew how this worked. So he marked up all the doors in the street to make it impossible to know which one was his. The king and queen, however, were not deterred. That night, the princess went to bed with a bag of buckwheat tied around her neck. And yes, if you have kids, don't do that. It had a small hole in it so that when the dog stole the princess, it would leave a trail all the way to the kidnapper's house. The soldier, despite these non-consensual makeout sessions, did not notice the empty bag tied to the princess's neck, but he did notice the palace guards storming into his apartment the next day. He was under arrest for kidnapping the princess. Because fairy tale justice is fast and unforgiving, he was sentenced to be hanged the next day. People initially came to laugh and spit and jeer at him in an iron cage out in public, but when the novelty wore off, the crowds ignored him until the hanging the next morning. That was how he was able to catch the attention of the shoemaker's boy, with a proposition for the kid. The boy didn't care about the soldier's fate or even really like the guy, but he did like money, and the soldier promised him four shillings if he would bring the caged man something from his apartment. As the boy walked back to the cage, he decided that there was no harm in giving the man a simple tinderbox. The next day, the soldier stood on the gallows, the king and queen watching over him. They were flanked by their nobles on each side. And the king had called out a portion of his army, too, to watch what happened if someone disobeyed him and tried to see his daughter. The king motioned to the hangman, who brought the rope to slip it around the soldier's neck. But the soldier stopped him and pleaded with the king for him to be allowed to smoke one last pipe in this world. It was not an uncommon and last request from a condemned criminal, so the king allowed it. The soldier patted his clothes until he found it. Ah, a tinderbox. He pulled it out and told the king that tinderbox had belonged to his father. Could he be permitted to use it, too, one last time? The king nodded in assent. The soldier thanked the king, but also said that that was a lie. It hadn't belonged to his father, but none of that mattered now. He struck the flint once, then struck it two times, then three times. Instantly, three massive dogs stood behind him. 
one with eyes as big as teacups, the next with eyes as big as millstones, and the third with eyes as big as towers. The gathered crowd broke immediately and fled in panic, but the soldiers of the king held their ground. Until the guy being executed told the dog with the eyes as big as towers to help the soldiers surrender, and the dog went to work decimating the troops. As the soldiers fought in vain against the giant dog, the king sneered at the soldier with a stiff upper lip. The rich soldier strode toward him. Dad? Is it okay if I call you dad? It doesn't matter. I'm going to call you dad because I am marrying your daughter. The king spat on the ground. No daughter of his was going to marry some common soldier. He would rather die. The soldier shrugged. That was the king's choice. So much for doing this the nice and legal way. You know, forcing the princess into a marriage and then having the king generously abdicate. But they could do the coup d'etat thing too. He whistled for the dog with the eyes the size of millstones and ordered the dog to tear both the king and queen to pieces. Over their screams, the soldier told his new fiance, the princess, that he was just so excited to marry her that they should do it immediately. He whistled for the tower-eyed dog to stop killing the soldiers and then asked them if they were ready to recognize him as the new king. They asked if it involved the giant dog not killing them anymore because they would do pretty much anything to stop the giant dog from killing them. The soldier nodded, and the troops bowed low, honoring their new king. And that's the end of our story. The soldier became king, married the princess after murdering her parents right in front of her, and ruled with an iron fist. There isn't any moral or justice, just a cold, unforgiving world, where the only power you get is the power you take. That was actually the main criticism of the story. There's no moral, no happy ending unless you're into really bloody military coups. This was one of the few stories written by Hans Christian Andersen that wasn't by Andersen. It's one of his early works that he recorded from oral tradition, doing the Grimm Brothers thing, and it was largely panned by critics. I do like that it subverts nearly all expectations we have for the story. Think about it. Even in relation to the witch in the beginning, there's absolutely no way that that witch, had she gotten her hands on the tinderbox and control of the three dogs, could have been worse than the soldier. I mean, the quote-unquote hero of the story committed sexual assault, massacred hundreds of people, murdered a king and queen, and likely destabilized an entire kingdom. I'd be hard-pressed to find anything the witch could have done that would be more horrifying than that. In the first story, the soldier's true nature really came out when he got his hands on some money. The next story is, thankfully, a little different. A boy sat playing with sticks and stones when the moneylender came by. Over the years, the man had amassed a fortune, and now he spent his days in his house surrounded by his stuff, and his pack of ferocious dogs, the story says. Thinking that retirement was a bit boring, and that he'd really like to make some enemies, he decided to loan out his riches to his fellow townspeople at exorbitant rates. And so today, Despite having more riches than one could spend in several lifetimes, he was on his way to harass one of the peasants that had a long-standing debt with him. He was maybe going to beat the guy up a little, but he was definitely going to take some of his best stuff to teach him a lesson. Except he didn't find the peasant at home. Only his son. The boy was playing with sticks and stones and announced, without looking up, that his parents weren't home. The moneylender demanded to know where they were. The boy, again without looking up, 
said that his father had gone to cut living trees and plant dead ones, and that his mother was selling the wind and buying the moon. The moneylender shook his head, and that means... what exactly? The boy repeated himself. It meant that his father was cutting living trees and planting dead ones, and his mother was selling the wind and buying the moon. The moneylender pointed out that the boy just repeated the same ridiculous sentence. He hadn't explained anything. Yeah, that's right, said the boy, finally looking up. With a strange smile, the moneylender forced a laugh. He wasn't really one for riddles, but this would plague him all day. Would the boy tell him the answer? The boy put down his toys. And what would the moneylender give him for the answer? Ah. Now, the moneylender smiled a genuine smile. He liked this kid. Okay, he had come to collect his father's debt, take some of their stuff, and maybe rough the guy up a little bit. If the son told him the answer to the riddle, he would completely forgive the parents' debts. The boy pursed his lips and returned to his toys. Did the moneylender honestly expect him to believe any of that? The moneylender assured the boy that he was telling the truth. Heaven and earth would be witness to his promise. Yeah, heaven and earth can't testify in court, the boy rejoined. How about something living? The moneylender smiled again. This kid was smart. A fly landed on a nearby bamboo pole, and the moneylender stared at it for a moment. He turned back to the kid. A living thing, huh? How about that fly that just landed on the bamboo pole? The boy looked to the fly, and then to the moneylender. Yeah, okay. A fly was good enough for him. My father's gone to cut down bamboo poles to make a fence by the river. See? Cut living trees and planting dead ones. And my mother... Wait, you promise, right? You'll free my parents from all their debts. You mean it? The man laughed. Of course. The boy continued. His mother was at the market, selling fans to buy oil for their lamps, selling the wind and buying the moon. I, personally, never really find the answers to riddles all that satisfying. But the moneylender did, and he ended up paying nothing for it. Of course, he had no intention of forgiving the parents' debts, but the boy didn't know that. So the moneylender said he would make good on the promise in a few days, when he returned to speak with the boy's mom and dad. A few days later, the boy heard his parents and the moneylender shouting at one another. The boy ran out with glee and interrupted them, saying that the father didn't have to pay. The moneylender had forgiven all their debts the other day, when they talked. The moneylender laughed. He had never spoken to this kid before in his life. And why would he forgive so much money? The parents, however, could not pay and explained that they couldn't give him anything. The moneylender sneered. This wasn't over. He meant it, too. Within a few days, both parents were summoned to appear before the governor, confused and terrified of losing everything. The parents sadly made their way to the magistrate. But while they were nervous... The boy was clearly not, and seeing as how his vague insistence that all the debt had been forgiven was all the defense they had, the parents let him appear before the governor. The magistrate listened to the story and pursed his lips. It was a nice story, but without a witness, it might just be that, a story. The boy informed the magistrate that he did, in fact, have a witness, a fly. A fly? Yeah, a fly, replied the boy. All right, I think I've heard enough to rule on this, the governor started, but the boy continued, as if the governor had said nothing. The moneylender insisted on using it as a witness. It didn't move from the tip of his nose the whole time. It was like he was used to having flies landing on his face. It was disgusting. The moneylender stood up and cut him off, calling the boy a little liar. The fly wasn't on my nose. It was on a bamboo pole. 
Oh. The magistrate burst out laughing, and then the audience, and then even the boy's parents. When the room finally settled down, the governor declared that the boy proved the conversation between he and the moneylender did in fact happen. The debt was forgiven, and the peasants could go home without fear of the moneylender. A fly, it seemed, was an adequate witness after all. That's it for this time. Next week, we'll be talking about the Emperor Charlemagne and the time he decided to take a night off from being the administrator of laws and justice to just rob a lot of people. I'll keep this short, but if you're not listening to Fictional, our other podcast where we cover stories from literature in the myths and legends style, we're four episodes into the new season and two episodes into the story of the Count of Monte Cristo, one of my favorite stories. You can check it out at apple.fictional.fm for the show on Apple Podcasts, spotify.fictional.fm for the show on Spotify, or just search for Fictional to find the show wherever you get your podcasts. The creature this week is the Inugami from Japan. You might think your family dog is just that, a friendly, loyal companion. But if that friendly, loyal companion is really just the form that a mummified dog head in your closet is taking to not scare you to death, well, you might have an Inugami. And that's usually a good thing. Unless you are truly evil or in a story from Myths and Legends and Mistreat a Dog, it will stay loyal forever. And I mean forever. If his mummified dog head source remains intact, the dog will protect and serve your family for generations. The creation of an Inugami is pretty textbook animal abuse. I get that times are different now and it's a different culture. I read the Apple Podcast one-star reviews too, but this is animal abuse, so don't do it. A dog is killed after being starved, but not just starved. It's chained up next to some food starved, or burying them up to the neck and waiting for them to go berserk. After the deed is done, you can then bury it at a crossroads where thousands of people walking over the head will mean it can't rest and will cause it to transform into a spirit. Sometimes the process goes sideways and the head breaks free from the ground before the owner has a chance to retrieve it. In that case, it'll fly around animated solely by its anger. That's really an occupational hazard of trying to make an eternal ghost dog. If the process goes well, you have a friend for life. Well, for several lives. And if you're the evil doing type, and I mean more so than to make one of these creatures, then you'll have a fun little helper for your evil. They're able to possess emotionally unstable or weak people, entering through their ears and then settling right in the organs. If you have chest pain, pain in the hands or your shoulders, and you suddenly drop to the ground and bark like a dog, you might be possessed by one of these creatures. If that happens, I hope you know some people who dabble in the dark arts or at least a sorcery freelancer because they're the only ones who are going to help you stop chasing squirrels. These are family heirlooms, but honestly, given that they're just kind of like a normal dog, but they could also get angry and possess you, it seems like they're just honestly more trouble than they're worth. I don't know if dog shelters exist that take ghost dogs that are older than most modern day countries, but if grandma leaves you a mummified dog head, that's probably the right choice. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes. And don't forget to check out Dear Franklin Jones, the new podcast from Stitcher, in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. The sincerity and the exciting pace of the preview alone sucked me in, and it's one I'll definitely be checking out myself. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye.